That has got to be one of the most shocking endings to any novel I've read. What did you think? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of Where the Core Dad Sings by Delia Owens. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll read the first half of a book together, share our thoughts, maybe make a few predictions and then at the second podcast we'll deal with the second half of the book. We can decide if it's a bit worth recommending. Of course you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible then you can listen to the book or you can do neither of course and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you but be aware there will be spoilers so I recommend you finish the book before listening you'd be you'd be warmed uh, welcome to bookshook so let's just have a quick uh recap from last podcast basically um Patty, the mother of Chase, has just told the police that he was wearing a shell necklace given to him by the, quotes marsh trash before he got married. But it wasn't around his neck at the coroner's. And so they decide they are going to have to get hold of Kaya to question her. So we start the second part, which I'm starting on chapter 26, called The Boat Ashore. So Chase and Kaya go on a trip to a new area of the marsh. But Chase is not interested in nature at all like Kaya. Tate sees Kaya, and then he decides he does love her uh, he returns to her cove only to see Kaya and Chase together from a distance so he, he backs away and Kaya resists Chase's sexual advances and later Kaya goes to the library in the Sea Oaks and here she's not the Marsh girl she reads a hilarious article on mating in nature how weaker bullfrogs sit next to the stronger ones to then get mates so again she's learning from nature Sam and Patty love her Chase's parents don't warm to her when she bumps into them Chase and Kaya drive then to Asheville and Kaya's shocked by the fake plastic nature that she sees all around her and they make love in a seedy motel and the lovemaking makes her feel cold and wanting more. And Chase dissuades her from Christmasing with his family so she spends it alone, even though she's quite desperate to, to spend Christmas with some sort of semblance of humanity. Um, it's as if Chase really doesn't want her around. Tate boats in to see Kai and he says to her, look, don't trust Chase because I saw him with another girl. And she reacts really bad to this. But she concedes and Tate enters her shack and he sees all these specimens that she's been drawing and all these artworks and specimens she's been collecting. He's amazed by the collection, in fact. And he says, quote, you could publish a book. Quote, once again, Tate was nudging her to care for herself, not just offering to care for her. Uh, very much unlike Chase. And then we fast forward to the trial. Hal Miller tells the police informally that he and Alan Hunt saw the Marsh girl beyond midnight motoring in her boat towards the fire tower and Ed and Joe decide that an arrest warrant must be needed. Um, and my own personal thoughts at this time are, I don't believe it for an instant, it wasn't a formal statement. He's just told them in a bar and how could they ever see who it was at the dead of night? Surely it's pitch black so maybe he's just seen another boat or it's some kind of frame. Also, I think that Sammy and Patty Love have a motive in this because they don't like the Marsh Girl at all. Anyway, we go back in time. Kai is still seeing Chase, but he sees her in town with his arm draped over another girl. And he's in a group. And she really feels like an outsider. And then she discovers a newspaper article stating that Chase is marrying Pearl, who she knows as always wears pearls. It's quite nice the way that uh, Delia Owens has described all the girls that she bumps into. Uh, we've got tall, skinny, blonde, ponytail, freckle face, short black hair, and round, chubby cheeks. Because obviously she doesn't know their names. She's 
she's not part of that that group, but that's how she she thinks of them in her head. In anger, she motorboats into uh, the rips, which is this sort of dangerous area of the sea. But luckily, a seashell sandbar saves her, causes her to reflect on loneliness, um, and she recites some poems. She's got a real love for poetry. And then a year later, um, a publisher sends her a book called quotes, The Seashells of the Eastern Seaboard by Catherine Daniel Clark. Within a year, she's managed to publish a book. She, she comments on developers building on the quote, The Murky Swamp, her amazing swamp that she loves so much. And she, she's got a real distaste for the, this development. But she decides that she's going to try and secure her land legally. She visits Tate. She gives him the book that she's uh, published. And there's a, there's a very touching scene where she also gives the book to jump in. Now, my thoughts are, um, at this point, you know, it seems very unlikely that she would publish a book. And did the author think that her main protagonist had to be, quote, successful? It seems slightly out of character in my mind that she would want to share her knowledge with, with people as well. But that's just my own thoughts. Anyway, carrying on, um, we go fast forward to the, the murder investigation. Ed and Joe question Jumpin and Tate. And they say, Kyle was in Greenville with the publishers on the night of the murder quite clearly and Miss Pansy corroborates that she says she, she sees her getting on the bus at 2.30 on the 28th and getting off 1.15 on the 31st but the police do say look maybe she made it look like an alibi she came back late from Greenville in the evening and did the murder and bust back which seems quite unlikely anyway we go back in time Jody returns he's been in the military Kaya recognises the scar on his face that Pa brutally gave and we have a history of that which is very sad uh, and Jodie tells her that her ma has died two years ago. Uh, so there goes one of my predictions, which um, I was hoping at the end of part one, that hopefully I was thinking that she would see her mother again. But unfortunately, that is not to be. A letter that Pa burned was actually a request for the children to come to New Orleans. But Pa wrote back to Ma in these very clear terms, saying that if she contacted any of the children, quote, he would beat us unrecognisable. There's a lovely quote here. Ma loved us all her life, but was frozen in some horrible place of believing that we'd be harmed if she returned and abandoned if she didn't. She didn't leave us to have a fling. She'd been driven to madness and barely knew she'd left. Anyway, Jodie shows paintings that Ma made of her children and one with her and Tate. And Kaya questions Ma, why didn't she send letters? I think the author made it quite clear that, quote, he would beat us unrecognisable par, but Jodie goes on to say, quote, I guess some things can't be explained, just forgiven or not, end quote. Jodie continues, if Tate came back, oh, she's talking about Tate now, if Tate came back, apologise and says he loves you, maybe you should cut him a little slack. I think if Tate loves Kaya, it would be great if they could get together at this stage, it would be great, it would be good for her. Anyway, going forward to the murder case, the police get into Kaya's shack and they're looking for certain evidence. So they're looking for these red fibres that they found on uh, Chase's jacket and a diary or calendar or some notes saying when she was out of town or the shell necklace or perhaps stubs from the night buses. They don't find anything except they do find the red wool hat or slash cap, it's sometimes called a cap, sometimes called a hat, which seems to be bad news, uh, quite incriminating, I guess. At the time, I, was, I definitely thought, you know, this is incriminating, but then, in the, in, as we see later, we do find out that actually those fibres could have been put on onto the jacket, you know, up to four years prior to the murder.
We go back to 1969, and I actually thought that the two timelines were coming together now, but they don't. They, they're still apart. Tate leaves a compass on the stump, and she sees him, but is too scared of abandonment, so she doesn't really make any contact with Tate. We fast forward. The police are considering now how to trap Kaya. They want to take her in for questioning, but she seems to be very elusive. Rodney Horn, a fisherman, says, quote, I saw something on the 30th, and Ed and Joe say, quote, let's get her in, end quote. So obviously he's seen something which is, we don't know what it is as the reader, but something obviously has been said, which is very important for the police. Anyway, the police catch her in the boat and they make an arrest. I think later we find out that she tried to escape and so that's why she's held in jail. So we find Kyra in court and the judge says, quote, the trial won't be moved due to local prejudices because Mr Milton, her lawyer, says that it might be unfair. And in court, perhaps the most memorable thing, I think, was the cat, Sunday Justice, a fantastic character in the book. Quote, Sunday Justice, the courthouse cat, his back black, his face white with a black mask around green eyes, stretched out in a puddle of sunlight in one of the deep window sills, a courthouse fixture for years. He cleared the basement of rats and the courtroom of mice, earning his place. Carrying on, we hear a little bit more about him. We will begin the jury selection, Judge Sim says, turning towards the first two rows filled with potential jurors. As he read off a list of rules and conditions, Sunday Justice jumped down from the windowsill with a thud and in one fluid motion leapt onto the judge's bench. Absent-mindedly, Judge Sim stroked the cat's head as he continued. I just love the character of Sunday Justice, and Kaya does as well, uh, as we'll see later. And Mrs Culpepper is on the jury, and there's the horrible lady who used to call her Marsh Girl, so she's not, she's not too happy about that. Anyway, we go back in time to before the trial, before the murder. Kaya, after receiving the compass, bumps into Chase, and this is a real crucial moment in the story because he attempts to rape her, and two men stare at her as she escapes in the boat. And I've put a question here. Are these Rodney and Denny? And it transpires that they are, because they make a claim that they saw her. The prosecutor's called Eric, and because there's no murder weapon, fingerprints or footprints, um, he doesn't even call a coroner, he just starts with a motive. So we start off with Rodney recounting the struggle with Chase, and her saying, bother me again and I'll kill you. And he does agree with the defence that she could be running away when he sees her. We flip back uh, in time. Kai races back to her shack. She remembers Chase was wearing the necklace. Interestingly, Denny does say that he saw her on the morning of August the 30th, but Miss Pansy said she was out of town then, so something needs to be resolved there. At this point, she's, she's fleeing to the reading cabin. She's just been attacked. She feels ashamed for having sex with Chase in that seedy motel, and she really understands how her mum must have felt. Quote, I will never live like that, a life wondering when and where the next fist will fall. As she's escaping to the reading cabin, she does see a mantis eating her love, uh, more on that later and seems to be teaching her as we see throughout the, the novel nature is her educator and again in the second half we have lots of examples of nature educating Kaya we fast forward to the trial. Kaya is held in a cell for two months before the trial because she tried to escape the police and no one's offered to pay her bail. Uh, why Jodie or anyone else haven't, I don't, doesn't really get
get covered. And then we go back. So Tate invites bruised, battered Kaya aboard his boat to see this new microscope that he's got. And he persuades her to meet this editor. But she's worried about taking the bus. And he, he flings a red cap at her, his red cap, um, for the cold, because it's quite cold. But she flings it back, and then he, they fling it backwards and forwards. And it's not really clear who ends up with the red cap. Presumably it's Kaya, but as we already know, that's going to be important in the trial. Later in the day, she spies Chase and she hides from him. She's just so scared. Then we jump forward again to the um, murder case. So in, she's in jail and she refuses Tate's visits or to call Jodie and she can't pay bail. Tom Milton, really friendly lawyer, really nice guy, has come out of retirement to do this job pro bono because he thinks that she's innocent, says, quote, plead guilty to manslaughter. Say he accidentally fell off the and you may get a lighter sentence. But Kaya says, quote, no, I will not go to jail. So she's adamant. And that makes us, as the reader, think that she's innocent as well, I think. Anyway, Mabel and Jump and send a heartwarming package, some drawing things, some shells. And then we've got this lovely example of nature giving her comfort. Sunday Justice, my favourite character in the whole book, probably. Um, certainly Kaya's favourite character, I think. <laughs> Quote... Then something moved on the hall floor just outside the bars of her jail. Her eyes swung there. Sunday Justice sat on his haunches, staring at her dark eyes with his green ones. Her heart raced, locked up alone all these weeks, and now this creature could step wizard-like between the bars, be with her. Sunday Justice broke the stair and looked down the hall towards the inmates' talk. Kyle was terrified that he would leave her and walk to them. But he looked back at her, blinked in obligatory boredom, and squeezed easily between the bars inside. Kyle breathed out, whispered, Please stay. Taking his time, he sniffed his way around the cell, researching the damp cement walls, the exposed pipes and the sink, all the while compelled to ignore her. A small crack in the wall was the most interesting to him. She knew because he flicked his thoughts on his tail. He ended his tour next to the small bed. Then, just like that, he jumped onto her lap and circled, his large white paws finding soft perches on her thighs. Kai sat frozen, her arms slightly raised so as not to interfere with his manoeuvring. Finally, he settled as though he had nested here every night of his life. He looked at her. Gently, she touched his head, then scratched his neck. A loud purr erupted like a current. She closed her eyes at such easy acceptance, a deep pause and a lifetime of longing. Afraid to move, she sat stiff until her leg cramped, then shifted slightly to stretch her muscles. Sunday Justice, without opening his eyes, slid off her lap and curled up next to her side. She lay down, fully clothed, and they both nestled in. She watched him sleep, then followed, not falling toward a jolt, but a drifting, finally into an empty calm. Carrying on, Jacob, who's this lovely prison guard, helps Kaya to see more of Sunday Justice. And Tate visits, and she says, look, forget me, I'm not part of your world. Which is quite an interesting reversal, because earlier in the novel, Tate decided she wasn't part of his world. I, I don't know whether you remember this quote. I'll read it to you again. He'd been at college less than... This is, this is uh, chapter 22. He'd been at college less than two months, but he had already stepped directly into the world he wanted, analysing the stunning symmetry of the DNA molecule, as if he'd crawled inside a glistening cathedral of coiling atoms and climbed the winding acidic rungs of the helix. Goes on. Kaya's mind could easily live there, but she could not. Kaya, Kaya, I just can't do this. He whispered, I'm sorry. So he rejects her. Anyway, he's changed his mind about her. That's, that's for sure. And with regard to how she's going to get off, I, I just, at this stage, I just don't know. How did those red fibres end up on his body? 
that's that's my big question. It was answered actually because they could have happened at any point in the last four years. But anyway, that that's what I'm considering at this time. We, we continue with uh, the trial sort of period of time. Judge Sims gets rid of the of segregation in his courthouse, and that makes us all think, yes, he's a good man. Um, and Jump and Mabel are in court. The coroner states that Chase died between 0, 0,100 hours and 200 hours on the 30th, so the morning of the 30th. The coroner's called uh, Dr. Stewart, and he states that he fell backwards through the hole, he may have been pushed, and that the fibres on his jacket matched the cap found in Kaya's shack. So I'm thinking there's got to be a link between the red cap here and the gull called red cap, or is it just a coincidence? Probably just a coincidence, but she does mention red cap, and um, I don't know, it just... Maybe, maybe. Email me. Tell me if, you, if I've missed anything there. The defence causes the coroner to agree that there is no evidence that Chase was pushed. It seems obvious to, to me at that time that he wasn't, wasn't pushed. Anyway, Tom says, quote, those fibres could have been on that jacket for a year, even four years. And the coroner agrees. He says, correct. Kyle considers phoning Jodie, but is too ashamed. She holds the compass to her heart, and it reminds her of uh, a poem. She whispered Emily Dickinson's words, the sweeping up the heart and putting love away, we shall not want to use again until eternity. That poem really reminded me of... Um, poem called Stop the Clocks by Auden. We're going back in time now, back to September 1969. She's excited to meet this editor and Robert Foster uh, who is the editor uh, is, is really into these sort of poetic descriptions of nature. Quote For more than two years they had exchanged short notes and even some long letters mostly discussing editorial adjustments for the prose and art in her books but the correspondence written so often in biological phrases blended with poetic descriptions had become a bond welded in its own language. She wanted to meet this person on the other end of the mail line who knew how ordinary light is shattered by microscopic prisons in the feathers of hummingbirds creating the iridescence of its golden red throat and how to say it in words as startling as the colours. That little quote there really reminds me of her love for this book by this guy called Aldo Leopold, A Sand County Almanac. If we go back to the first half of the book, um, it's in an early chapter, chapter 17. Quote, For the rest of summer, Kyra and Tate did the reading lessons at the Tumbledown cabin. By mid-August, they had read through A Sand County Almanac, and although she couldn't read every word, she got most of it. Aldo Leopold taught her that floodplains are living extensions of the rivers, which will claim them back any time they choose. Anyone living on a floodplain is just waiting in the river's wings. She learned where the geese go in winter and the meaning of their music. His soft words sound almost like poetry, taught her that soil is packed with life and one of the most precious riches on earth, that draining wetlands dries the land for miles beyond, killing plants and animals along with the water. Some of the seeds lie dormant in the desiccated earth for decades, waiting, and when the water finally comes home again, they burst through the soil unfolding their faces wonders and real life knowledge she would never learn in school carrying on she tells Jumpin uh, that Chase attacked her uh, because he noticed the bruising um, and it's still visible a month later and Jumpin does offer his support and he even offers his home if she feels under threat from Chase we go forward to the trial again Tom Cross examines the sheriff and he concludes that the tide could have washed away the footprints rather than being deliberately covered up and that there's no evidence to put Kara at the scene 
and the sheriff only three months earlier wrote complaining to the Forest Service about the safety of the grates at the top of the tower. And at this stage, I'm still thinking, look, we don't know where or who has the necklace. That is really crucial. We need to find that out. Anyway, if we, we go back and she leaves to see the editor in Greenville on the 2.30 bus. And uh, I was just thinking, Denny said he saw her early morning of the 30th. So why did she come back early? Question mark. And the, the narrator does say she returned on the 30th at 1.16. The narrator does not mention that she comes back on the night of the 29th. So either the narrator is being naughty and not telling us all the truth, or she genuinely didn't come back to murder Chase. And also I'm thinking the shrimper called Miller, as I presume, did not see the marsh girl motoring out to the fire tower the night Chase died. It could have been anyone. Anyway, Jumpin tells Kaya the body of Chase has been found. This is after she comes back. And, you know, I can't see how the police could have had any evidence of foul play. Do they think that the body was drugged up and dropped? Or do they think that she lured him up and pushed him? I guess that's it, but it does seem unlikely. Anyway, going forward to the trial, Tom shows up some silly suggestions that Kyle was disguised coming back to the cove on night of murder in the night bus from Greenville. And then there's a journal that's shown in, in court as evidence that shows that Kyle was giving a necklace on top of this fire tower. Patty Love confirms Chase wore the necklace constantly and had it on the night of the murder, but didn't have it in the coroner's. So yeah, there's this sort of bizarre picture of her giving Chase this necklace, which is sort of a strange present to have given to Chase. Anyway, more questions. I, I, was, I was thinking, are we going to see Miller's evidence smashed a bit that he saw the Marsh girl go towards the tower at midnight? Miller says she was boating towards the fire tower at 1.45. And for a start, if Chase died at 0, 0,100 to 200 hours, why would she be motoring toward the fire tower at 1.45? And Miller confesses that it might not have been Kaya doing that. Anyway, the prosecution accepts that she got on the bus and got off at the time stated. And Lang Furlow testifies that Kaya stayed at his, quote, Three Mountains Motel from the 28th to the 30th of October and that he didn't see her leave. Uh, and Scupper joins the courtroom. And Robert Foster, her editor, also testifies that he took her back to the motel at 9.55 on the 29th. And she really feels angry that he's got involved. She was trying to keep her reputation in, in the editorial publishing world sort of really good, <laughs> clean. And then her editor's there. So I'm thinking, surely it's over. There's not any case to begin with. Anyway, the prosecution state that her decision to stay at the motel rather than a hotel is because um, it's close to a bus station for returning to murder. But the defence says, no, it's because, according to Robert Foster, she doesn't like big crowds. And as a loner, unused to cities, a motel near a bus station would be less stressful for her. And then the defence and prosecution questioned the sheriff about whether there would be a time to commit the murder once uh, Kaya's bus had got in. Doesn't seem there would be much. And when are they going to bring in the necklace, I'm thinking? <laughs> anyway, O'Neill, who was in Miller's boat, says it was too dark to say whether it was Kaya in the other boat. And then we have some closing statements from the prosecution and the defence. And then the jurors spend ages deliberating, but finally they come up with the decision that she is not guilty. She spurns consolation from Jodie, and Kai watches the sheriff take away Tate. 
So, did he murder Chase? Tate's out in the boat and uh, Kaya sees from her cabin him racing across the water and then him looking very forlorn as he's dragged onto the sheriff's boat. But then we as the reader think, oh my God, he's going to be had up in court now for murdering Chase. That would be terrible. But it's actually just a cheap trick, Delia. Cheap trick because... Tate's father, Scupper, has died and the sheriff was just coming to tell him and all he was doing was just taking him away in his boat. Anyway, Kyra and Tate do ultimately declare their love for each other and Tate moves into Kyra's shack and they have this sickeningly idyllic life together. Um, Just have a listen to this. Quote, each morning they rose at dawn and while Tate percolated coffee, Kaya fried corn fritters in Mars old iron skillet, blackened and dented, or stirred grits and eggs as sunrise eased over the lagoon, the heron posing one-legged in the mist. They cruised estuaries, waded waterways and slipped through narrow streams collecting feathers and amoebas. In the evenings they drifted in her old boat until sunset and swam naked in moonlight or loved in beds of cool ferns. There we go. Idyllic, hey? And then, there's a series of deaths. First of all, Jumpin' dies. Kaya's very upset. She says, quote, he was my pa. At this time, I'm thinking, and I've written this in my comments, you know, the ending's going on too long here. Please, leave something to my imagination. Can't we just end the novel now? And then she's incredibly successful again. Quote, Tate continued his job at the lab and Kaya published seven more award-winning books. And though she was granted many accolades, including an honorary doctorate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, she never once accepted the invitations to speak at universities and museums. The fact that she is successful is it's out, of, out of character. I don't think she would be the sort of person to be winning seven more award-winning books. Maybe she would be. I don't know. She just doesn't seem like that kind of person. But anyway... Kaya and Tate ultimately can't have a family, and then Kaya dies at 64, so we have the death of Kaya as well. And now I'm thinking, look, come on, give give the reader some room to use their own imagination. It's like, you know, the author can't let go of her character. She has to have total control. And some of the writing at this point is is a, a bit over the top. There's there's a quote of him saying, Kaya, Kaya, no, no, he screamed. And then the, the author's so determined to have the last word, she even gives the grave marker. So, quote, Catherine Daniel Clark, Kaya, the Marsh Girl, 1945 to 2009. Talk about having complete control over your character's whole life, which is fine, I guess. She's the author. She can do what she wants. But, you know, having, you know, letting her live in my imagination, I was really looking forward to just thinking about her life away from the novel, I guess. Anyway, Tate discovers a box of Amanda Hamilton's poetry and he realised that actually Kaya was this uh, Amanda Hamilton person whose poems are sort of peppered throughout the book. And at this point, I'm thinking, oh, wouldn't it have been great if he, instead of finding poetry in the box, he had found, uh, he, he'd opened a box and he, he discovered a fake wig, a mask, the shell necklace, and maybe a bus ticket with the time 12 midnight on the 29th. And I kind of wrote this in the side of the book in a kind of joking way, but then... Two paragraphs later, there's a poem that basically incriminates Kaya completely and the necklace. So I read the poem and it all makes sense now. So there is that big twist. So ultimately the truth did not 
out the actual truth, you know, that she killed Chase. And personally, I find it slightly unsettling. Um, how could Kaya live with that secret for so long? And now how can Tate live with that secret? And what about all the work that Tom Milton and the judge did on her behalf? The ending feels a bit kind of tacked on, or maybe there were a few endings, and this was kind of the best or most exciting, uh, not exciting twist. I just, I just don't know whether it follows the natural path of the character, and I don't think, I don't think Carl would have murdered Chase. What he did was excessive, but I can't imagine her murdering, uh, murdering him in cold blood because of it. I think certainly in self-defense she could have murdered him, but in, in cold blood I don't think so. So anyway, let's just look at those questions that we had at the end of the first half of the novel. If I just go back to them. Um, so the first was, did Kaya kill Chase? And I said no. <laughs> it were quite clearly she did. Uh, will Kaya find love? Yes, ultimately Tate uh, and her got, in quotes, married. Um, and then w will Kaya's mother return? Unfortunately she didn't. That's very sad that she died. And will Pa or brother sisters return? No, we, we don't hear from Pa or um, the sisters. We do obviously hear from Jodie. And who has the shell necklace? And I've put here, at the end of the last podcast, I put Kaya because she liked it and there's also a clue but I put him she may have taken it from him many days before the murder if it was murder but no she didn't because she murdered him anyway yeah so, so they're the questions um, thinking on a bit longer I, yeah Tom Milton and Robert Foster they, they worked hard to get her off and she did it all along and what about poor Patty Love yeah well she wasn't a very nice person she called her uh, I think marsh trash but you know she lost the son uh, and I feel sorry for for Patty Love that she didn't really get any justice and she she's probably still grieving for her son in the author's defense the shell necklace did need to be resolved somehow um but she could have maybe left it open in some way maybe the necklace snagged as he fell disappearing into the mud and why did she need the, the shell necklace? Why did she want that? I mean, maybe it was she she was so angry with him that she wanted closure on that part. And why wasn't she questioned by the prosecutor? Well, the, Eric needed to say was, "Look, Kaya, do you know where the shell necklace is? Uh, or what are you what were you doing on the night of the twenty ninth? We didn't get those questions. And um, anyway, my feelings overall: would I recommend the novel? Depends on the person. Would you recommend it? Certainly. The, the descriptions of nature, which continues through the, the second half of the novel. Fantastic. The praying mantis, or the female mantis eating the lover, is a fantastic one, uh, where she's learning from nature. Quote, After a simple meal of hard bread and smoked fish, she sat on the edge of her porch bed, staring through the screen. Just at that moment, she noticed a female praying mantis stalking along a branch near her face. The insect was plucking moths with her articulated forelegs, then chewing them up, their wings still flapping in her mouth. A male mantis, head high and proud as a pony, paraded along to court her. 
she appeared interested, her antennae flailing about like wands. His embrace might have been tight or tender, Carr couldn't tell, but while he probed about with his copulatory organ to fertilise her eggs, the female turned back her long, elegant neck and bit off his head. He was so busy humping, he didn't notice. His neck stump waved about as he continued his business, and she nibbled on his thorax, and then his wings. Finally, his last foreleg protruded from her mouth as his headless, heartless lower body copulated in perfect rhyme. Female fireflies draw in strange males with dishonest signals and eat them. Mantis females devour their own mates. Female insects, Kaya thought, know how to deal with their lovers. Just like she did at the end of the novel. An example where she uses the knowledge learnt from nature is in the courtroom. Quote, the language of the court was, of course, not as poetic as the language of the marsh, yet Caius saw similarities in their natures. The judge, obviously the alpha male, was secure in his position, so his posture was imposing but relaxed and unthreatened as the territorial bore. Tom Milton, too, exuded confidence and rank with easy movements and stance. A powerful buck acknowledged as such. The prosecutor, on the other hand, relied on wide, bright ties and broad-shouldered suit jackets to enhance his status. He threw his weight by flinging his arms or raising his voice. A lesser male needs to shout to be noticed. The bailiff represented the lowest ranking male and depended on his belt hung with glistening pistol, clanging wad of keys and clunky radio to bolster his position. Dominance hierarchies enhanced stability in natural populations and some less natural, Kaya thought. And then we've got the narrator summarising exactly how Kaya's learned. On page 363, right at the end of the novel, we've got this wonderful quote from the narrator. Quote, most of what she knew, Kaya that is, she'd learned from the wild. Nature had nurtured, tutored and protected her when no one else would. And I think that is the key sentence or couple of sentences in the whole book. Basically, Kaya has learned everything she knows from nature because she was rejected by so many people and school. And then after reading the book, I mentioned in the last podcast this idea of dramatic irony, the characters not knowing what we, the readers, know. And that's flipped here. This time it's us who are blinded by the narrator. For example... After the trial, the narrator says, quote, As time passed, most everyone agreed the sheriff never should have arrested her. After all, there was no hard evidence against her, no real proof of, of a crime. And that's the narrator speaking. She goes on, or he goes on. And though Kaya was never completely healed from the scorn and suspicion surrounding her, a soft contentment and near happiness settled into her. Healed. I mean, that's a strong word to use. The other thing is that Tate was very busy with Kaya when she was in jail. Quote, during all those months pining for Kaya, then trying to visit her in jail, he'd spent almost no time with Scupper. Guilt and regret needed clawing away. He'd not been so obsessed with her, his own heart, perhaps. He would have noticed his father's failing. So because he spent all this time dealing with Kaya, he's actually missed out on precious time with his father just before he died. Um, And the not mentioning the bus journeys, why does the author and narrator fail to mention the secret bus journeys? Quote, she stood on the corner under the bus stop sign and waited until the trailways bus, its air brakes hissing, pulled up, blocking the ocean. Nobody got off or on as Kaya stepped forward and bought a ticket to Greenville from the driver. When she asked about the return dates and times, he handed her a printer schedule and then stowed her suitcase. She tightly held her knapsack and boarded. And before she had time to think much about it, the bus, which seemed as long as the town, drove out of Barclay Cove. Two days later, at 1.16 in the afternoon, Kaya stepped off the trailways from Greenville. At no point does the narrator mention 
the other bus journeys. So I don't know what you call inverse dramatic irony, but we definitely had some of that. And another interesting thing I thought in the novel was this split forward backward timeline by using these reminiscences or daydreams. For example, the favourite picnic with Tate that she's thinking of when she's in court and then the journal for Chase that she's thinking about and the fact that she never had a pet all these little thoughts that she's having in court that act as kind of daydreams also help us keep those two timelines going even when the two timelines meet anyway I want to talk a little bit about the actual author now so Delia Owens, I didn't know much about her and I didn't really want to know much about her until I'd finished the book. Anyway, so Delia Owens, she's an American author and zoologist. This is her debut novel and it's topped the New York Times best fiction bestsellers for 25 non-consecutive weeks. But she's also written memoirs called Cry of the Kalahari and the Eye of the Elephant and Secrets of the Savannah with her then-husband Mark about their time studying animals in Africa. She grew up in rural Georgia in the 1950s. She and her, her husband, Mark Owens, were students in biology at the University of Georgia. She earned a bachelor's science degree in zoology from the University of Georgia and a PhD in animal behaviour from the University of California. Then they moved to Africa in 1974 and worked in the Kalahari Desert at the North Luangwa National Park. And then in the early 1990s, Mpika in Zambia. Since completing her PhD in biology, she published her studies of African wildlife, behavioural ecology and professional journals including nature, animal behaviour and the African Journal of Ecology. And she's also contributed articles to natural history and international wildlife. So I think that, that that's why the depictions of nature are so so well done and the, the process of nature. Anyway, a little bit about Delia Owens. Uh, now I'd like to talk about the, the book that we're going to read together for next month. It's called The Moon and the Bonfire by Cesare Pavese. Uh, this is recommended by a very good friend of mine. He said it's one of his favourite books. So I'm going to read uh, maybe just the first couple of pages. I don't know anything about Pavese. Italian, that's all I know. There is a bit of uh, biography at the, the front. Born in 1908 in Piedmont. I think I'm going to leave it at that and just first impressions, just see how we how, see how it goes. So this is the first time I've read it. Okay, chapter one. There is a reason why I came back to this place, came back here instead of to Canelli, Barbaresco or Alba. It is almost certain that I was not born here. Where I was born, I don't know. There is not a house or a bit of ground or a handful of dust hereabouts of which I can say, this was me before I was born. I do not know whether I come from the hills or from the valleys, from the woods or from a great house with a balcony. Maybe the girl who laid me on the cathedral steps in Alba didn't come from the country either. Maybe her people had a big house in town. Anyhow, I was carried there in the kind of basket they use at the grape harvest by two poor women from Monticello or Neve, or perhaps from Cravenanza. Why not? Who knows whose flesh and blood I am? I have knocked about the world enough to know that one lot of flesh and blood is as good as another. But that's why you get tired and try to put down roots, to find somewhere where you belong, so you're worth more than the usual round of the seasons and last a bit longer. I think I'll leave it there. What a fantastic opening to a novel. I wonder where he comes from then. What an interesting way to think about your fellow man. Flesh and blood. So cold, so clinical. I wonder if this says something about the character. I'm very intrigued. 
I really hope you have enjoyed reading Where the Crawdad Sings. I will join you next podcast for an in-depth look at The Moon and the Bonfire by Cesare Pavese. Have a great couple of weeks and I'll see you at the next podcast. Mm-hmm.